So chapter 25 of Acts, I want to read to you the first 11 verses. Now, if you're physically able, I'll encourage you, if you would, to stand as we read the Word of God together. Paul is in jail, in Roman jail, having been accused by uh, Jewish leaders from Jerusalem. Um, Picking up in verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he was the new governor, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that, that he summon him to Jerusalem. Because they were planning to ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat in the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, saying, he said, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go down, go up to Jerusalem, and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus. When he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. In recent weeks, it seems like um, our, our news feeds have been very excited as rulings from the Supreme Court have come down. And for, for many of us, they have been very encouraging, but the most encouraging of them all has been the ruling on uh, a case that essentially um, undid the the, the case that was decided in 1972, Roe versus Wade, that that, that made abortion illegal in the United States of America. Now, I want to make a confession before I say much much further. Um, We often say, and rightly so, Uh, That we should pray according to God's power, not according to man's power. Uh, And what we mean by this is that we should pray according to what God can do, not according to what you and I can do. But I want to confess to you that often my prayer has been limited by my weak understanding of what God can do, and oftentimes limited by my own personal limitations of power and ability. Recently, the Supreme Court of the United States of America issued a ruling that I never thought would come. Roe v. Wade was decided in 1972. That's 50 years ago. 
I'm 47 years old. That means my entire life I have lived and breathed in a nation that legalized the murder of babies within the wombs of their mothers. I have preached Sanctity of Life sermons. Every January I have pleaded where I could for the life of children and, and tried to teach a biblical understanding of life at every opportunity. And I have prayed that God would bring revival to our land and end the scourge of abortion among us. But I confess that for all my passionate preaching and faithful praying, I did not believe that the day that we are today would, are experiencing would have ever come. I'm thankful for what God has done. I'm very thankful for what God has done. I'm thankful for all those who worked faithfully and passionately and diligently over these last 50 years to make the case for life in this nation. As Baptists, we fall into the camp of the evangelicals. Um, our history on abortion is not all that stellar. In 1972, evangelicals were not ready to make the case for life. Many evangelicals at the time thought that the question about whether or not abortion should be legal or not was just a Catholic issue. We didn't pay any attention to it. Roe v. Wade caught us by surprise. It caught us by surprise. We were unprepared, and it took us a while to, to ramp up, to understand what was happening, to understand the, the consequence of that, of that decision, and to, to begin to build the organizations to make the effort to make the case for life. And I am thankful for those leaders who have led faithfully over these last 50 years to contend for the life of, uh, from, the, from conception to the, Lord, to the moment the Lord takes us home. Unless you have been on a desert island with no internet access or cable access, um, you have likely seen some hyperbolic, exaggerated responses to the decisions of the court. Unfortunately, much of this has been more in the, in the context of reactionary and not in the context of accurate, of what the court did and what the court did not do. Many of those who support abortion have proclaimed doom and gloom and have, have professed outlandish fretting of, over what the court's decision means. So this morning, I want us to take a look at Acts chapter 25. And consider what the Bible says and teaches to us about how we as Christians should and ought to interact with the world around us politically in a secular world. But before we walk through the scripture, I do want to give a brief civics lesson so that we can understand what really happened last week, what did not happen last week, and what kind of work continues to need to happen. When the framers of our Constitution ratified the document, most of the founders thought the Supreme Court was the least dangerous of the three branches. The legislator could pass ridiculous laws. The executive could abuse their power. But they didn't see any real threat in the Supreme Court because the, the, the idea of the Supreme Court was to simply adjudicate laws and actions according to the words of the Constitution. 
Beginning well before 1972, there began to be a teaching amongst law schools that the way you should interpret the Constitution is not according to the words that are in it or the intention of those who wrote it, but rather see it as a living document that can be adjusted and, and, uh, and, and, and new lights invented into it to accommodate uh, modern sensibilities and, and modern opinions. And you see that most dramatically displayed in the, in the decision of Roe v. Wade. There is no, abortion is not uh, mentioned in the Constitution. The right to abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution. And in fact, even the legal principle that, that uh, Roe v. Wade was based upon is also, this issue of privacy is also not mentioned in the Constitution. It was an invented right by the justices in 1972. The court's decision last week was to reject this judicial philosophy and instead articulate that the Constitution should be interpreted by its own words and, by the, by, and these words should be first understood in light of the ones who first wrote them. Now the good news, this is the good news, friends, I think that is a healthy positive, corrective action in our nation's government. To push those decisions back to where they should be, which is in the legislators, both federal and state legislators. Just as a side note, oftentimes people look to Europe and they think Europe being so liberal, surely they're more liberal than we are on abortion um, questions, but in general, uh, uh, Europe is much more conservative in these questions, in part because they have decided uh, the question of abortion in their legislators, not in their, in their courts. So this corrective action has some things that we ought to celebrate. And the first thing we ought to celebrate is that the absurdity of, the, uh, of seeing a, a right to the uh, abortion in the Constitution has been rejected. Praise God for that. But where we still have much work to do is we essentially turn the clock back to 1972. And now the question of abortion rests with our state legislators and our federal legislators. And depending on where you live in the United States of America, that means much, a, a, a very different thing. If you're in California or in New York states, uh, you, it is legal to have an abortion right up until the moment of delivery. That's barbarism, friends. Even within our own state of Georgia, I think it's 22 weeks in the state of Georgia. And listen, if you talk about political polls, you will find that they'll say that most people believe that abortions ought to be restricted at some point, but, 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 uh, but, it's, but, but in the early days, there ought to be some freedom to abortion. And I, I want to just be very honest with you. The reason why this issue has been so polarizing is if you understand that life is a gift of God and all life is sacred, even if you want to find an accommodating compromise with the world, you really can't. Because if God creates life and life is sacred, then you have to protect life from conception to the grave. And conversely, those who, who say they want to have abortion but have some restrictions, you will find, which I think we have seen, is that they may start with some limita limitations, but eventually the insatiable desire for personal autonomy over the sacredness of life will lead them 
to being willing to murder a child even up to the moment of delivery. So the good news is abortion is no longer deemed as a constitutional right. The, the, the work that continues for you and I is to contend with our neighbors and our friends and our family to continue the work in our own state. Now the blessing is we now have an opportunity to do that. That has been returned to the people and our elected, uh, 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 elected reg uh, legislators. And I would encourage you to be sober-minded in that work and to work toward that end. So I want us then to look at Acts chapter 25 where Paul is in trouble. He is in legal trouble. And Paul is using the fullness of all the rights that he has as a Roman citizen both to find protection from those who wish him harm and to advance the gospel of Jesus. And I want us to see from this passage how you and I as believers whose first allegiance is to the sovereignty and to the majesty of God but who also live and work and participate in our communities that have laws and government, how can we honor God and participate in the government of our, of, our, of our land. Now, before I go any further, let me just say, my intention this morning is to offend all of you. Amen? <laughs> Y'all, your mama told you not to talk about religion and politics in polite company. I'm going to do both, which means wherever you are on that spectrum... I'm probably going to upset you a little bit. Just understand my intention this morning is to tie us very closely to the Scripture and let Scripture speak into us how we should function in the context of a, a secular political world. Three things I want us to see out of this passage. Number one, I want us to see God's grace that is demonstrated through government, even wicked secular government. Number two, I want us to understand that God is the one who is sovereign over all things. So when we think about where does our help come from, when we think about who can do great and mighty things, it is not the government, it's not the president, it's not the army or anything else. It it is the living God who is in heaven and over all things. And then lastly, I want to give you an admonition, a challenge, an encouragement this morning to trust God and to know the law and, and use the law for the glory of God. But let's begin with God's grace. Now, the, the very understanding of government from a biblical point of view is that the gift of government to us is that God used government, God uses government to restrain evil. Now, to see this in this passage, we need to back up just a little bit to some previous chapters. So, all the way back to Acts chapter 21. In Acts chapter 21, uh, Paul has been preaching, and the Jews do not like the gospel that he's preaching. And so, they begin to falsely accuse him of, of heresy, and they stir up the crowd against Paul. And, and, and in, in chapter 21, beginning in verse 27, he's surrounded by a mob, and they are beating him with the intention of killing killing him. That's a bad day, isn't it? And because it is such an unrest in the community, the, the Roman officials send out centurions. They send out the, the police. And they, 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 they take Paul and they drag him out, keeping him from being killed. And they lock him up in the barracks to protect him from the mob. Now that begins his imprisonment. In chapter 22... The Jews bring their formal complaint against him to the local tribunal, to the local sitting government, Roman government. And they are about to flog him. 
beat him mercifully. When Paul says these words, chapter 23, verse 25, it says Paul pointed out that he was a Roman citizen and it was not lawful uh, that, um, that he should be beaten without found guilty. So they're about to beat him and the Roman uh, authorities are about to let it go down. They don't really care about Paul. They really don't frankly care about all the religious controversy that's going on. All they really care about is just keeping order. But right before they're about to beat him, Paul looks up at the, the Roman officials and go, hey brothers, is it lawful for what you're about to do? I'm a Roman citizen. And immediately they get a little scared because they were about to beat a man who had not been afforded a proper trial. That was a right of a Roman citizen. And so from that moment on, the local government protected Paul from being from the, those that were accusing him and kept him from being murdered by the Jews. In Acts chapter 23, 40-plus Jews get together and they, they plot to assassinate Paul. And so what they're going to do is they're going to ask the, um, uh, the, the, the governor to move Paul from, from one uh, tribunal to, to where he's being held to a tribunal. And on his way, they plan on ambushing and assassinating him. Now, interesting enough, that's chapter 23. They make an oath amongst themselves. We will neither eat nor drink until Paul's dead. That's why they're really upset in chapter 25. They're hungry. Amen? Because <laughs> he's not dead yet. Paul gets word that this assassination plot is in play. And so he sends that word up to the, the governor. And the governor acts to protect Paul. Uses Roman resources to, to move him in a, protective, uh, in a protective way and keeps him from the assassination plot of the Jews. Felix, the governor, was the one who was in charge there. He found no merit to, to the Jews' accusations, but he kept Paul in prison because the Bible says he was hoping to extort money out of him. In chapter 25, Felix has been replaced by Festus. Festus. And Festus likely doesn't know all of this backstory. He doesn't know that there's a plot to assassinate. He doesn't know that these 40 plus men have taken a, an oath to kill Paul. He doesn't know about all of these things. He just knows that Paul is in prison. And he kind of wants to just see what happens here. And so, and, and it, several times it tells us in chapter 25 that he wants, to, um, uh, he wants to do a favor for the Jews. Now what's happening is he's the Roman governor. But the Jews can, at their discretion, cause all kinds of disruption and unrest. And so he's wanting to get on their good side so that he can keep the peace. And he didn't have to report back to his headquarters that he can't maintain the peace in the community. We see in all of this an example of the God-ordained grace of government and that God uses government to restrain evil. Now, if you are of the age where you can drive an automobile, there is a sick feeling when you look up in your rearview mirror and you see those red and blues, isn't there? There is a sick feeling when you look up in that rearview mirror, you see the red and blue lights and you look down at your speedometer and you realize you're speeding. And in that moment, nobody ever tweets or puts on Facebook or calls somebody and says, you know, I just love the government. Oh, I am so thankful that they're out here writing speeding tickets and, and keeping us safe. And yet at the same time, aren't you thankful that you can get in your car right now and drive from here to California on roads that are relatively safe because 
There is an imposed speed limit. There is an imposed safety of all the drivers, not because we want to be good drivers, but because government is pushing back against anarchy and creating safe space for us to live and drive and do our work. Friends, listen to me carefully here to understand this distinction. The Roman government does not honor God and the Roman government does not love Jesus. Felix nor Festus care anything about Paul, the Jews, the gospel, or the living God. But even these secular, godless rulers, God is using the government of Rome to restrain evil as a gift of grace. He's using the government to restrain evil for the sake and for the blessing of Paul and the preaching of the gospel. Praise God that God uses government to restrain evil. And I would say to you, friends, that Christians should work with government for man's blessing. So we see government as a gift of God's grace in restraining evil, and it can be an, an, an instrument to doing good and a blessing for our fellow man. Now, there's two times in this passage that Paul asserts his legal rights. In, in, in chapter 22, in verse 25, he asked the Roman governor, is it legal, lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And it wasn't lawful, and therefore he was not beaten. In our chapter that we read this morning, in verse 11, um, he appeals to Caesar. Now, he's not just making a grand speech. That's a legal right of a Roman citizen. So, um, he is asking, is, is, you hear us sometimes when people um, have, have gone to court, and maybe they, they lose. In, in, in court and they're going to appeal it and they'll say I'm going to appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court well for a Roman citizen there was a legal right to appeal your case all the way to the court of Caesar wherever Paul was and whatever he was doing he was preaching the gospel he preached the gospel when he was a free man able to go and do whatever he wanted to do he was preaching the gospel when he found himself in local jail under the, under the authority of the local governor. And he would preach the gospel all the way to Rome, even to Caesar. Paul exercised his rights as a Roman citizen fully, not only for his own benefit, but also for the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom benefit. Now, there's something interesting in this passage that is often, uh, you just read past and you don't realize what's happening. Jesus had already spoken to Paul that he was going to uh, testify in Rome. If you can turn in your Bibles back one page, go back to, or maybe two pages, go back to chapter 23. In chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus speaks to Paul. And it says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Now, Paul's in jail at this moment. But he says, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, here's an interesting thing that's happening. Paul is in prison by the local, uh, the, the, he's, he's been charged by the Jews. He's in prison by the local Roman officials. Um, Jesus has said to him, you have testified or preached about me in Jerusalem, and you will preach about me in Rome and Paul realizes not only is he going to go to Rome but God's going to use Rome to pay for his travel. He says I appeal to Caesar and that means that he gets put on a prison ship and Rome pays for him to go all the way to the capital city. 
He's going to use his rights as a citizen of Rome to provide for his travel and for the proclamation of the gospel. Dear friends, God's grace is in restraining evil through government and for Christians using the laws of our land for the advancement of the kingdom. We say to this that we do not put any hope in government. We put our hope only in Jesus. While we should rejoice in God's grace shown through the evil restraining work of government, we must also recognize that the government is not the source of our hope. Listen to me carefully. We must be sober-minded as Christians when we deal with government. We rejoice in the grace of God that God uses government to restrain evil. I'm thankful for local law enforcement restraining evil. I am thankful for our military restraining evil. We, are, we were at peace this morning driving from our homes to this place. We were at peace last night in our beds. We were at peace as a nation because of the restraining power of government pushing back against evil. We should be thankful for that. But we must also recognize that the government is not the source of our hope. Even as um, Felix keeps Paul in prison to keep him from being uh, murdered by the Jews, he also keeps him in prison to extort money out of him. He's a wicked, evil man. Festus, even though he uh, 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 acquiesced to Paul's to, um, uh, exercise of his rights to go to Rome, the reason why he's even entertaining, uh, uh, trying Paul and trying to push him to Jerusalem is because he's more concerned about appeasing the false accusers of the Jews rather than um, coming to actual justice for Paul. He's a wicked man. Our hope is not in the goodness of government. Our hope is not in the salvation that comes from political leaders. Our hope is only in Jesus, the true king, and his eternal kingdom. Yes, amen to that. Dear friends, one of the things that I think is most dangerous for the church is if we conflate political leadership and political government with the gospel call and gospel power. Do you hear me? If we venerate political leaders over the worship of the living God, we are worshiping an idol and not the true living God. Be thankful for government. Recognize God's grace through government. Use the laws of government for the blessing of God's people and for the blessing of your neighbors and for the advancement of the kingdom. But put no hope in government. Our hope is only in Christ Jesus alone. Amen. Number two, we see in this, this passage the power of the living God. Now, here is a blanket statement that is absolutely true. God can use anything. God can use anything. We see in the passage both the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. So we see the sovereignty of God in that he is sovereign over all things. Now, if you were a person on the street in chapter 25 of Acts, and you would have said, who is controlling this land? You, they would have said, Rome controls this land. They had the great mighty military that had conquered so many vast lands. And the, the land of Israel and Judah, Rome was the powerful nation. They were the ones installing the, the governors who ruled the, ruled the communities. 
The chief priests may have had cultural control. They certainly could stir up the people. And there is some, there is some element of power and, and control in that. So Rome had the military. The chief priest had the culture. But, but God is sovereign over all the high officials, even to the regular person on the street. So even as you see Rome as tempting to exact their authority militarily, even as you see the high priest trying to stir up the crowd for their own advancement, we also see in this power that none of them are able to act beyond the sovereign will of the living God. God is in control and sovereign over everything. God is using anything and everyone. God is sovereign over all and he is providentially working through it all. God is working through the powers of the land to provide for Paul in the advancement of the gospel. God is using Rome. He's using Felix. He's using Festus. He's using Caesar for his glory's sake. God will providentially provide to protect for Paul. God will provide a platform for Paul to preach, not only to the people on the street, but even to the high official government officials of Rome. And God will provide for Paul even to travel to Rome. That's God providentially working through the greatest of things, even down to the smallest of things. Friends, God can use anything and anyone. He can use secular government. He can use organizations. He can use a leader, even a secular leader. We find that all the way through Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, a pagan king, God used in a great and mighty way. Certainly God can use individual, individuals. But, but there is a, there's a mitigating truth that I want you to see here. God can use anything. But we must be careful to understand that sovereignty, listen carefully to this, sovereignty does not equal approval. The fact that God is sovereign over something, therefore he can use it, does not mean that he approves of it. God would use uh, Felix. God would use Festus. God would use Caesar. But none of these men's are, men are examples of righteousness. None of these men love Jesus. None of these men care about the gospel. God is sovereign over all and can use anyone and anything. But we must not confuse the sovereignty of God to use someone or something with the approval of God. In other words, we can rightly say God is using this political leader without saying God approves of the behavior of that political leader. Do you understand the difference? We can say God is using the government in this particular area without saying that God approves of the behavior of the government in, in other areas. God is sovereign over everything, but that does not mean that all things that God is sovereign over, he approves of. There will be many politicians whom God uses that will also suffer under the judgment of God for their own wickedness. God has used many to save the unborn children of this land. Friends, listen, whatever your opinion of the moral character of President Trump, we can be thankful that God had him in place to choose three justices that God has sovereignly used to save the lives of unborn children. And as, we're not saying with that that we think Trump is a righteous man. We're not saying about that that we think he's a moral man. But we are saying God used him for the glory of his name. Mitch McConnell and that as well. He didn't get as much credit. But we're, th we're not saying a word about how his standing with the Lord. I don't know how he stands with the Lord. But we can say that God used him for the glory of his name. Many, 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 many others God used for the glory of his name. 
We should be thankful for all of these and how God has used them, but we must be careful not to venerate them. Venerate means to worship, to celebrate them as something other than what they are. To this, I would just simply say, dear friends, we ought to pray big and find peace. Recognizing God's sovereignty and in, in, in God's providence, we should pray according to the power of God to move. If anything, what happened with the Supreme Court should encourage all of us that our prayer life was too small. And it's still too small, is it not? Oh, pray big. Pray according to the great, mighty nature of who our God is. Pray according to the sovereign ability of God. Pray knowing that God can and will use anyone and anything he so chooses. Pray according to God's will, not man's strength. But as we pray big, find peace that even when we cannot see what God is doing, that does not mean that God is not working. It had to feel like God may have forgotten Paul when he was sitting in those prison cells, and yet we see, looking back on it, that God was working through it all. Find peace that no matter what the political landscape is, God is still sovereign over it all. Nations rise and nations fall. Laws are written and laws are struck, but our God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and his throne is never shaken, and his kingdom never retreats. Find peace that even when it seems that evil is in control, God is still providentially working according to his perfect will. One last thing. This is the admonition for us today, the encouragement for us today. Trust God and know the law. Trust God and know the law. Two things here. First, engage with the laws of the land for God's glory. Sometimes there is a thought amongst Christians that we should disengage or withdraw from the political world around us. Now, the, the, this, this idea of disengaging or withdrawing is often motivated by the recognition of the secular nature and the evilness of man's politics. Now, politics can be nasty, friends. It can be underhanded. It can be cutthroat. There's a lot of unsavory, unpleasant things in politics. And there is, I get it, there is sort of a natural aversion to that. So many Christians have said, listen, it's so polluted by passion and, and, and arrogance and, and, and wickedness that I, we think the best thing for us to do, let's just disengage. Let's just back up. Let's just live in our little world as much as we can, try to disconnect and disassociate from the political world around us. But I think we find in the testimony of Paul an encouragement not to disengage, but to engage the political structure around us. Whatever you say about this passage, you must acknowledge that Paul knew the law. He knew his rights. So when they were about to beat him without a proper trial and finding him guilty, he was not ashamed to say, this is illegal and I demand my rights. When Festus tried to transfer him back to the, the Jewish tribunal, Paul knew his rights and said, no, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. There was an interesting, uh, there was an interesting Roman law that said that if a, an, a, 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 an accused prisoner was going to be transferred from one jurisdiction to another, 
that could only happen on the, um, on the permission or the agreement of the prisoner. So that's why, trying to do a favor for the Jews, Festus wants to accommodate them, send Paul to them. And, but he has to ask Paul. But he, he, he presents it like it'd be something good for Paul. Paul, don't you want to go to Jerusalem? These are your buddies. These are your people. You'd much rather go with their tribunal than hang out with us Romans who don't like you. But he can't do it. His hands are tied because Paul the prisoner must agree to that. And Paul says, no, I appeal to Caesar. That's why the governor says to, to Caesar you appeal and to Caesar you will, you will go. Christians should use the law of the land for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Where the law provides protection, seek it. Where the law provides rights, enjoy them. Where the law gives opportunity, take it. But as you do, let the gospel inform everything. Christians are followers of Christ no matter where we go, what we do, or to whom we are speaking to. So we're servants of Christ when we're on the street sharing the gospel. We're servants of Christ when we stand before judges in courtrooms. We are servants of Christ when we stand before great executives, kings and princes and presidents. We are servants of Christ. In your private life, let the gospel inform everything you do. In your public business life, let the gospel inform everything you do. In the public square, making cases and arguments for the good and blessing of our neighbors amongst our neighbors. Let the gospel inform everything you do. I think Christians ought to be engaged in politics. I would much rather one who is submissive to the lordship of Jesus be the one writing my law than the ones who don't submit to the righteousness of God. But as you engage in politics, let the gospel inform everything. There's no such thing as a Christian who's a Christian here and not here. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a follower of Christ wherever you go. Before kings and presidents or in the dank, dark place of a local jail, you are a follower of Christ. Let the gospel inform every part of your life. While exercising the rights of a citizen and the provision of the law, let the gospel inform everything in your life. It's undeniable that in recent years, our country has culturally grown more secular in a, in, a, in a rapid nature that I don't think was foreseen. We, we're just coming out of the month of June, and friends, it was hard to watch TV in the month of June for the commercials and the propaganda that was being pressed at every corner. And one of the things that you have noticed, or you may have noticed, is that as our culture has grown more secular, there has also been an accompanying hostility that has grown toward religious freedom. This hostility has led to an effort to restrict the expression of faith in the public square and to limit the expression of religion to the confines of your home and even within the context of a worship center. You'll hear some politicians use the phrase freedom of worship. 
That's not a good phrase. What they mean by that is you're free to go to your church and talk about your God within your church and maybe even in the, in the privacy of your home, but you don't have the freedom of religion, which is the expression of your faith wherever you go. Now, the frustrating thing for believers is we can't separate the two. We are not just Christians when we gather here. We are followers of Christ wherever we go. So if we're in the public square, we're contending for the, for the glory of Jesus. If you get elected to a public office, you're still a Christian in that public office. I think, looking back, I don't know the hearts of those who made the decision, but I think, I believe that in 1972 when the Supreme Court invented the constitutional right to abortion, I think they genuinely believed that by making that decision, they would settle the question for our country. It was arrogant, I think, to think in such a way that unelected judges could resolve such a sensitive issue outside the deliberative work of a legislative body. But I think that's what motivated them to do what they did. I think they thought they could settle the issue by judicial fiat, but, but what they did was awaken the church to awaken Christians who had up until that moment given little attention to the plight of the unborn. As the horrors of abortion came to the church's attention, our passions were ignited and we were motivated to preach in our pulpits, work through the mechanisms of government and to contend on behalf of the unborn. Praise God for that. Praise God for ultrasounds. They gave us a glimpse into the womb of a baby moving and growing. God was in that. But friends, the work continues. God is still working. God is sovereign still. Praise God. He is sovereign. And God is still providentially working. I believe that 50 years from today, we will look back on this moment and we'll be able to see then God's providential hand and sovereign work now. But I want to encourage you as Christians, those of you who know Jesus, those of you who have been transformed by the blood of Jesus, your sins have been washed clean. You've been made righteous to stand before a holy God, and you have been filled with the knowledge of his righteousness. I want to encourage you to use whatever you have, whatever influence God has given you, whatever rights as a citizen you enjoy, Use it for the glory of God. Government is not our salvation, but it is a gift of grace. Let your voice be heard in the public square for the blessing of our neighbors and for the advancement of the kingdom of God. For the glory of God. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street, 
here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 10.30 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.